Hi, this is David Housden, and you're listening to the Sound Architect Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Sound Architect Podcast. I am your host, Sam Hughes, and today I'm once again joined by composer David Housden. How's it going, David? Welcome back. It's great to have you back. Thanks so much, dude. Yeah, really good. Thanks. I've been looking forward to chatting to you for a while. Yeah, definitely. It's always a pleasure. And always. today, I'd love to talk to you about your work on Lost Words Beyond the Page, which I've been playing a lot of even today, actually. And I didn't expect the feels, man. Like, I had no <laughs> idea what I was walking into. And it's really emotionally stirring from the start. Like, beautiful strings, piano. And I'm like, oh, here we go. I'm going to tear up. I know I am. Like, even before the story starts, I knew from the music that I was going to lose it at some point. So before we dive into that, how did you first get involved on the project? Um, we're actually going back a very long time now. I think... It was 2016 when I uh, first discovered Lost Words. I was um, walking around uh, the show floor at Rest in London, um, just checking out some uh, interesting looking projects. And I came across uh, this unmanned booth with this very interesting looking um, kind of mechanic of, you know, uh, it, it was quite primitive at the time, but the essence of everything that you see now was there. So um, it was just the uh, the journal segment of the game, but the story was so impactful within about kind of five minutes of playing through it because it was a very short demo at that point. Um, you know, I was quite moved, uh, to be honest. So I made a note of um, the game to kind of, follow up with the developer afterwards just to say like you know absolutely love what you're doing um and when i did i discovered that um mark backler the uh, creator of the game actually lived in the same town as me oh wow um, that's nice yeah uh, we <laughs> it's, it's a reasonably small town called ipswich uh, about an hour outside of london and there's literally no game scene whatsoever so it was really quite <laughs> surprising uh that, to find another fellow creative there so um yeah we we went for a drink and just hung out and it uh, turned out he was a big fan of thomas was alone um but there was another composer uh, on the project at that point in time so we just kind of stayed in touch as friends and uh, you know that was it really um and then 2017 the composer that he had uh took a big step back from the project to focus on his uh, full-time career and um I, I think he was getting married as well so he had like quite a lot of oh, stuff wow, going yeah. on a lot on his plate yeah exactly and um yeah mark kind of called to ask if i'd mind helping out and stuff and then i think within um you know a few weeks it transpired that it was going to be more than me just helping out and uh, <laughs> we ended up redoing the keep, entire keep score helping out a bit more just. yeah <laughs> so yeah we we redid the entire score from uh from scratch so um oh, wow it was yeah 2017 was uh, probably when i first started writing for it so it was you know quite a long project for a for a relatively small game yeah, because I remember I was at Gamescom that year, 2017. I remember playing the demo. Yeah. Um, and again, I think it was mostly the journal side. So yeah. I had no idea what to expect when I actually played it recently. And it, it's come a long way. Like it's It was great already and it had a really nice concept. Um, but it's amazing how much it's come along in the, in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, e even, even for me, um, to be honest, I think there was a point in time when we were even discussing just making a game of the uh, uh the journal segments because the mm. mechanic there is excuse me so unique well it's quite lovely even just in that area yeah no absolutely um but mark really um from a narrative perspective wanted to 
explore the um, uh, the fantasy world because uh, the the two stories act as uh, metaphors and allegories for one another. Yeah, the symbolism is just rife. Uh, So it makes sense how much he wanted to push that. For sure, yeah. So it was kind of fundamental to the tale that he wanted to tell. And um, also musically, it was very cool because it meant that I got to... I got to drop hints of themes in the real world and then kind of really expand upon them in, you know, Astoria. So there's that side of things is really kind of tying into everything as well. And, um, uh, Sidoni's, uh, vocal performance is just so incredible and moving. We've got all of these individual facets that when fused together creates something quite special. It's great really, because it's just kind of like emotionally filling, I would say. Um, how did you first get going on the project inspiration-wise? Like you had this previous composer, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Did you have to block out what was already there and do something completely different? Or did you take some source of inspiration because they obviously had an idea then of what they wanted? I I actually found it quite easy because my, my instincts for what the game uh, needed and required from a musical standpoint uh, was different to the approach that um, the previous composer had taken with it. He went for a, a lot more of a, a real kind of minimal ambient sort of sound. And I I, I really wanted to kind of make it a, a more of a melodic affair. I felt there was a lot more emotional subtext that I could bring out um, of the narrative. And um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to do something quite different with it. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't too difficult. It wasn't by any means kind of a case of following the temp which i would have found a lot more difficult you know if mark was like truly in love with the previous score and he was to an extent like it took it took some work to kind of get him off (laughs) that yeah as soon as we got that first piece that he um that really kind of like clicked with him then it was it was just like plain sailing from there so um yeah it wasn't it wasn't too bad and um honestly it was such an amazingly inspirational projects I, I there just was not a day of writer's block like from the first day that I started writing the notes just flowed and I I don't take those experiences for granted because they're very very rarely the case <laughs> and uh, you know well you're on about me it's easy you just bang out music constantly I know yeah no it was, it was good <laughs> but yeah now that sounds awesome and like you say you got to kind of use the fantasy world which you know, without giving anything away, emulates the emotions felt by the character in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. It was, you know, I think um, something I've discussed before with anyone who's known me for more than five minutes is that I'd love to work on a Final Fantasy game or, you know, a a big sprawling (laughs) JRPG um, epic where you just get to go to town with different themes and really kind of create a musical language uh, for something. So whilst this wasn't an RPG, it was an opportunity to kind of really develop that sort of musical identity. Um, And there were so many different themes and um, kind of narrative threads that I wanted to... um, assign a motif to uh, musically and then kind of weaving them all together. It, it was an absolute dream project, I have to say. I ended up writing, I think there was 104 minutes of music in total and it's only a sort of three to four hour game. So I really, you know, went quite overboard on it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but the love what, is there, right? Yeah, you know. You know like it, it shows how much you care. 
Yeah, I guess so. And also, you know, it's not every day that you um, you get to express yourself in that. You know, the, the subject matter like that comes across very rarely. And um, I felt it was important to kind of show the respect that it deserved. And um, also, it was almost two games in one. You know, you had these yeah. drastically kind of different uh, aesthetics and mechanics um, that you had to um, support sonically while still making it feel cohesive overall. And um, it was just really good fun kind of going from these like really nice intimate arrangements where you're trying to capture a, a specific emotion in quite a raw sense uh, to then just go into fantasy grandeur in the next uh, kind of beat. You know, it's um, it, it was really a lot of fun. Yeah, I can imagine. And how did you, so how much were you involved in the implementation side for a start? I informed the entire uh, process uh, from right. start to finish um, in terms of, actually being the person that plugged it all into unity at the end i couldn't have had less to do with it (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah every you know uh every every single cue appears where i wanted it to plays back in the way that i wanted it to and crossfades uh or uh layers uh, or any number of other transitions which we use for the game in precisely the manner which i intended it to so yeah from start to finish i had to uh plan out how i wanted the music to be implemented and we achieved that by um i was mainly given kind of uh gameplay videos of each stage to work to um i also had builds of the game uh which is really handy for um a familiarizing yourself with uh, what it is that you're actually writing for um but b kind of getting a real feel for uh the pace um of the game making sure that you're supporting um the player's actions as much as you are their narrative and the subtext and all of these other things that i particularly do like to look for uh, in the music um so yeah from there i would Almost like if you were scoring a film, I'd go through and do a spotting session of where I felt, um, you know, there were particular moments I wanted to highlight with um, a, a cue or a, a lift or a change in tone or something. So I go through and I make all of these markers in logic and then I, I just start writing and uh, sketching really. And sometimes I start ignoring the footage and just kind of get lost in the piece that I was writing and then retrospectively go back and think, oh, actually, this eight bar segment would work really nicely at this particular part of the game. And then you go back and you nice. sort of start to dissect things and then, you know, figuring out how everything can bleed in together and feel like part of this seamless whole experience was definitely where the uh, majority of the work comes. Like actually getting the ideas out in the first place is probably the simplest part of it. And that's not always the case. Um, so in one, in one way it was an absolute, dream of a project to work on in another way it presented some new challenges which aren't always you know um the way because it is quite a linear experience but at the same time you spend a lot of time um on each stage and the puzzles aren't particularly hard but there's a lot of there's a lot of narrative that you have to absorb before you're allowed to continue sometimes and um everyone reads at their own pace uh so it's difficult to know how long uh anyone's going to be hearing any one cue uh before they move on um which is obviously a very common uh thing for any composer writing for games but you know it's these things that you have to you have to find a solution for and um 
yeah, that, that's essentially how it works. And then I'd write a PDF um, kind of explaining everything that I've done in the video, breaking down time codes and uh, with the individual keys next to them and kind of explaining the um, implementation functionality that I wished it to have. Uh, and then Mike would uh, plug them in and um, then I'd get another video back showing me it in action. And then I give feedback, and then we'd normally get it in one or two, kind of back or forth. So it was a relatively straightforward process, um, but it did require a couple of us because I'm not about to start programming in the game engine. No, yeah, definitely. You've got enough skills already. <laughs> no scripting as well. Um, so, yeah, I was going to ask about that. You mentioned how everyone moves at their own pace, um, and obviously you had to allow for the fact that you might be in certain areas for quite some time. So how did you accomplish that? How did you kind of uh, overcome that challenge where people might stay on the same page for a while or stay in the same area and kind of stop the music being too repetitive? It's really about kind of trial and error as much as anything else, but just following your instincts and what feels good. Um, generally speaking, if if someone had the capacity to spend uh, upwards of 10 minutes in an area, then I'd want to make sure there was two to three minutes worth of music looping yeah. there. So you're never going to hear more than a few repetitions at most um, before moving on. Uh, and then when you move on, uh, it's about getting the transition feeling really nice because this is the problem when you do want to kind of write all of this lush melodic music, it's all well and good, but getting that to sit in a game there's any number of outcomes um, defined by the player action. So they could go through possibility A, possibility B, or possibility C, and the music has to transition and feel like a seamless, continuous piece, regardless of which one of those outcomes they choose. It really does come down to tight implementation. Um, so the, the way that we do that is obviously within the same stage, I would always be composing within the same key. Um, so you're not going to get any uh, kind of jarring modulations between scenes or anything. Um, but having said that, almost every stage is in a different key. So you get, you do get that kind of, um, uh, your, your ear gets refreshed upon each stage. It's, it's not like the entire game is in A minor or something, uh, because I think that would become fatiguing very quickly. Uh, but within a stage, everything is within the same key, or, or at least, you know, it goes to the corresponding major or minor from whichever key it was. Um, so that's one way also keeping it at the same tempo. That's, that's one of the most jarring things, um, uh, changing time signature, changing tempo, uh, between scene. Uh, so keeping everything kind of consistent, that gives you the best chance of being able to create this kind of seamless experience. And then it comes down to whatever engine you're working in. We use wise, uh, which offers the functionality of being able to, change cue on the nearest beat or at the end of the nearest bar and kind of depending on how tight we needed the cut to be you can play around with that a little bit so i would always like to change at the end of the nearest bar because then that gives at least a chance for whichever phrase is happening at that moment to finish and resolve naturally before then moving on into something else but sometimes if it was like a really big moment um we'd have to cut on the beat but then you know you can you can cover that with like a nice big sound effect or something, and uh, before before anyone knows it, they're off into the next queue, and you know you've you've uh, you've got away with it, so to speak. So there's all sorts of ways and techniques of doing it, and you know you really need to use a combination of all of them to get it feeling really tight and good. Yeah, just give it that illusion of more evolution than there is, I guess. Precisely that, yeah. But it's it's actually quite. I consider it to be quite a simple uh, method of scoring. To be honest, you know, it's taking a, a granular approach with things. Um, 
you know, there's, there, there's layers going on sometimes when we need it, but like more often than not, it's just about kind of smart use of loops, placement and uh, transitions. Nice. I mean, I'd almost say it's a smart use of minimalism. From a technical standpoint, absolutely. Yeah. You know, many people uh, quite vocally uh, disagree and almost kind of look down <laughs> on uh, composers who don't go out of their way to uh, overly complicate uh, the implementation of their music. But, you know, all I'm ever trying to do is uh, support a story and support an experience. I want to do that in the most effective way possible. And if that requires me to, um, you know, go quite in depth within uh, what's possible uh, within whatever the middleware is, which we're using for that project, then so be it. I, you know, I would not shy away from that challenge, but equally it's not something that I'm going to go out of my way to force in to a a minimal, uh, beautiful, emotional uh, narrative experience, which requires very little in that (laughs) way of things. And I'd argue it would almost make it uh, a less immersive experience if I did start to try and get overly clever with it. Well, yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's what you need to do to serve the project, you know, and what's appropriate. It doesn't matter how clever it is under the hood. You don't have to try and show off. It just has to serve the vision. Precisely. And if you achieve that with one 10 minute loop per stage or uh, a series of uh, smaller micro loops and smart transitions like we use for this. Or if you do something, um, you know, really over the top with uh, vertical or horizontal layering, it doesn't matter so long as the end result is that the player um, receives the experience that um, they, they deserve. So I want to go back to something you brought up earlier about the multiple choice kind of answers you can give throughout the game. Um, First of all, did you design uh, different music for each answer? And did it feed into the following stage, depending on what you chose? Yeah, there's there's various moments where, um, kind of depending on where you go or what you do or what order, uh, something happens, you'll you'll receive a different cue for it. But as I was saying previously, because everything's written within the same within the same keys, same signature, same tempo, so on and so forth, it's not really like you're getting these drastically um, drastically different things. If you if you take take a choice which is going to perhaps have a slightly um, negative outcome for a character that you're with, then yeah, okay, we might we might transition into the corresponding minor for that moment and um, play around in there a bit before resolving uh, at the end of the stage. Um, if you if you take a route where, uh, you know, we've listed a few uh, collectibles or something and we want to sort of reward the player for their exploration, then you're going to have, you know, something with, I don't know, maybe some uh, added sticks in there to give you a, a more of an adventurous feel and kind of reward your um, progression and so on and so forth. So it's very minor things, man. I'm not going to try and pretend that like there's uh, there's like fr- I wrote three scores for the entire game or something. <laughs> it's really not that at all. It's just about trying to um, uh, support the player's actions regardless of what they may be. But it's these subtle touches that people don't necessarily realise in the moment, but they they do have an impact. You know, even those little things like adding the sixths. You'll feel it, yeah. No, precisely. But I do, I do prefer to try and achieve that with um, uh, the music itself uh, rather than uh, wasn't. You know, I, I like the music to be able to speak, and um, loads, loads of people say that um, my music sounds quite bittersweet uh, sometimes, and particularly on projects like this. And Thomas was alone. I had that, and I actually quite like that because um, I never really, I, I would never want to just hit an emotion uh, on the head. Like I, we're, we're complex beings, and I don't think anyone exclusively feels entirely happy or entirely sad at any given moment in time. Like we're more nuanced than that. And that's something which I really wanted to 
tap into musically as well. And, you know, you can achieve some quite extraordinary results if you actually juxtapose what, what's happening on screen with the music. Um, that's something that I find quite fascinating. Like, uh, for example, uh, I can't talk about this without giving this away. <laughs> something happens in um, stage six. And I'm not sure if you're there yet, but obviously the listeners won't be. So I'll try and keep it vague. Um, <laughs> this is the best, watching people try and vaguely discuss <laughs> stuff without spoilers. A sad event occurs. And I think the simplest thing to do probably would have been to take out a, a felt piano, play some minor chords and put a melancholy melody over the top of it. Um, instead of that, I actually wrote something which was quite, it was happy in a wistful way. Like it, it was, yeah. it was a, it was a major piece. Um, if you listen to it in isolation, there's nothing sad about it, but all of a sudden when it's fused with this particular scene, it takes on all of these different connotations and it's almost like a happy type of sadness, which becomes more profound than if you were just trying to make someone cry, uh, you know, by writing something like yeah. really sad for that moment. And it's these kind of, it's, that, it's those scenes and opportunities where I really actually get quite excited about music because they allow you the chance to explore something a bit different. And um, I think that's where you can get some of the most interesting results. Yeah, definitely. And it's actually really appropriate for the character's journey as well, I, I feel. I mean, I'm not that far into the game yet, but even as far as I've got, I think I'm on stage three or four. Um, but even by then, I'm like, well, you know, she's kind of going through uh, a different amount of emotions and interpreting them however you would as a young a young child, you know. Um, and so I think that's that's very relevant. And then even in the way you've described you know, where the, the scene is going and the way it juxtaposes it. It makes sense with the age of the character as well as the moment. And I'm guessing what's probably coming up later. Yeah, so. <laughs> no, absolutely. Because, you know, it, it, it's quite interesting to actually look, look beneath what happens in a scene. So to give you an abstract hypothetical example, which obviously has nothing to do with what occurs in the game, let's say you're dealing with loss in a scene, loss of a friend, loss of a relationship, um, loss of a life, like any, any kind of feeling of loss. The reason that we as human beings kind of experience and respond to loss in the way that we do is because of the, the fondness and the happy memories that we attach to something. And the knowledge that we no longer have that is what creates the sadness. So you can either yeah. focus on the sadness, which is obviously the most immediate kind of part of what we're feeling and experiencing at that point in time. Or if you stop to look a little bit deeper, you could perhaps score the relationship that they had rather than the yeah, fact the that they've just lost it. Rather than the moment. Exactly. And because the story and the uh, the player is you know, being presented with the loss front and centre on screen, musically going back and reminding them why that loss matters, I don't know, that's the kind of thing that excites me anyway. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine it hurts more. It's like, yeah, yeah. like you say, it's like actual loss. You yeah, know, it's not just sure. the musical side of it; it's the real side of it. That you're not sad. I mean, you are sad because of the moment in front of you, but you're sad because of all the happy moments that have gone. Basically. Precisely, that's it, man. And you know, I think the most famous example of that is Up. 
uh, yeah. Michael Giacchino, you know, although he does it with like motif rather than um, kind of juxtaposing what's happening in the moment. But the reason that those few notes, which previously had been so happy and joyful, have that no, effect on us, yeah, is <laughs> <laughs> because you know we associate that that motif with um, all of the love and the happiness that they share together, and we know that, that that's no longer going to be there. So all of a sudden, it takes on this different hue, and you know that becomes gut punchingly sad. And we're going to take an intermission while me and David cry about the story of Up Now. <laughs> <laughs> Legit break. Um, so <laughs> was that the first time that you were introduced to that concept, would you say? Or was that, what was the most, the first time that you were like, wow, I never really thought about using music that way? Um, it's something that I inadvertently did on Thomas Was Alone. Yeah. Actually, because I don't like uh, writing sad music. Um, so, uh, anytime, like, there was an opportunity to, or, or I was asked to kind of score a scene with, um, you know, a bit of emotional weight to it, I would try and give it a tinge of hope rather than being overwhelmingly um, kind of sad. And I think that's where the sort of the bittersweet uh, thing came from. Because I don't, I don't actually think that um, the bittersweetness is inherent in the music itself i think the music is more often than not um quite happy so i think it's the combination of both like i genuinely i think if you listen to a lot of my music in isolation with no kind of um prior um concept of what it was attached to you probably wouldn't consider it to be you know uh, i'd be very surprised if anyone came away from it thinking oh christ that was sad that's not ever what, yeah. I, try, what I try to do. Um, so yeah, it was kind of it was kind of inadvertent to begin with. But then I think it was yeah after after seeing up and loads of people started you know trying going against the grain uh, kind of intentionally after that. And I think I probably became more cognizant of it as an actual uh, tool in your arsenal to use rather than just something which I stumble across through you know uh, personal preference and natural instincts or whatever. So um, now it's definitely something which I use for effect i'm curious now this may be a difficult thing to point to or ask really for any composer's journey but has there been anything throughout your composing career where it suddenly gave you like a profound realization and changed your kind of method or is it like we grow up you know nothing really was a profound moment but we just kind of pick up things along the way and you know what i'm going to do this now because that actually works better yeah, I think I think the latter uh, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's a thousand small incremental changes that build up over time, and then after however many years, you can look back and say, "Oh God, I've come a long way." But there's no one <laughs> moment, man. It's the um, learning new things, picking up new tips and techniques, um, being asked to score new genres, man. Like literally any any genre of music that I get asked to compose in, which isn't pop punk is a new learning experience for me because that is yeah. all I did when I grew up. <laughs> Basically, I, I taught myself how to play guitar and I went around with three of my friends playing to 10 people in pubs, um, sort of bad Blink-182 rip-offs. So nice. that was my musical <laughs> education. So any time when I, I kind of join a new project, um, yeah, obviously I, I do have a wealth of experience of genres behind me now, but uh, you know, particularly when I back when I was starting, it was always an adventure and it was always very fresh and new. And... I think I do just see, see my career in composing as this long, massive learning experience because I, I, I you know, I, I wasn't even allowed to take uh, music GCSE in high school because I didn't have a uh, grade four in an instrument, and it was really just my my love of it and my own personal passion that um, 
sort of led me to where I am. So um, I, th- I think because I, I don't have that um, fundamental background that the majority of my peers uh, probably do, um, yeah, I, I always feel like I'm learning and I, I always want to be learning. Like I, I feel very uncomfortable about getting to a point in my career where I suddenly felt that I don't need to know anything else, you know. I think that's uh, it's, it's good to never reach that point, right? That's when you're yeah, always... <laughs> yeah. I think that's where complacency can creep in very quickly. Yeah. Jumping back to the lost worlds. Um, so we talked about the kind of journal world and the fantasy world. How did you carry between the two and and kind of bring themes across both? Well, the journal was. I knew from the get-go that I wanted to approach that in a very different way, stylistically. So we went for um, really intimate, stripped-down arrangements. At most, there would be a piano, a string quartet, and some atmospherics and kind of synth work. That was the palette for the journal. Um, and the reason that we did that is because I wanted to I wanted to present what was happening in the most sort of open, honest, stripped-back raw intimate way possible and that was the palette that suggested itself to me to be able to achieve that you can achieve some very beautiful things with um you know quite minimal tools at your disposal so yeah there's not and then obviously the fantasy world is like full full blown orchestral grandeur um so there's not a lot in terms of palette to link them so one prominent example uh is stage six again so at the end of, end of stage five something occurs in the fantasy world of Astoria uh, and a particular um, theme will play there and then when the journal segment of stage six begins the theme carries on uh, but changes instrumentation into the um, into the journal palette uh, and builds and develops from there and then when you go into stage six of the um, fantasy um, side of things it completely blows up and goes over the top so there's this there's this this common thread musically speaking but not represented uh in terms of instrumentation or orchestration uh between the two so that's how i tried to make it feel cohesive um and obviously everything was recorded and mixed in the same place so it's all it's all done in the same room so kind of it's got the same production aesthetic uh linking it as well but um it was just about planting these seeds of ideas in one place and then picking up and growing using the musical language which I'd established for uh, whatever section of the game transpired after that and then doing the reverse uh, when you move into the next section and so on and so forth. Yeah, well, it works so well. And it, it, what's, what I love about it is that it's such a parallel to the story, you know, and it's even more symbolism within the music because obviously the fantasy story becomes a form of escapism for the character and almost a form of denial, right? So it's kind of like, oh no, I'm a hero on an adventure. Everything's great. Don't worry. And that's the music's like, yeah, we're here to make you feel like that as well. Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. It's really nice. But the music is also one of the only things actually directly linking the journal to the fantasy land because it is so different and grand as you said and the story changes and you know I, th- I think it was really interesting exploring that through the eyes of a child um but i don't think it's that fundamentally different from what uh you know uh adults you know we, we build up our own defenses to help us kind of get through things and denial is um something that you know psychologists agree uh is one of the stages of 
grieving, which, you know, uh, anyone, anyone will go through an experience at some point. So obviously it's been massively exaggerated, um, due to the age of the protagonist. Um, but I think that was a really interesting kind of gaze to uh, view the subject matter through. And, um, also musically, it maybe kind of let me get away with, a, a bit more because it was this child's interpretation of everything that's happening. So you get to kind of be a bit more over the top and uh, less subtle than if it was uh, sort of really RT uh, adult intimate look at the effects of grief on us as humans or something. I don't know. It really struck a chord with me because it's amazing how seeing it through the eyes of a child makes you not only realize uh, how a child reacts to these situations, but also reminds you how similarly you react, like you say. Like it kind of makes you think like, yeah, I would kind of feel that as well, actually. Definitely. And, you know, everyone on the team is of an age where they're going to have had their own experiences, either, you know, directly or indirectly with the subject matter that we were exploring. And we all had um, parts of ourselves which we could kind of look into for influence and reference. And I, I think, you know, particularly... Um, uh, when it comes to uh, the narrative, the, the, some of the writing just really, re really hits the nail on the head. And um, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I didn't drop the ball when it came to the music on that side of things. So I really did work very hard to give it all of the kind of respect and passion that I could. Yeah, and it definitely shines through, man. It's it's beautiful stuff. Oh, and I look forward to getting through to the end as well. I'm sure you're going to make me cry even more. <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should have warned you beforehand. <laughs> yeah, no, no one gives you a heads up on these things. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about a very different sort of game. Now, congratulations on scoring Battletoads for rare which of course is a very different game <laughs> i mean i don't know maybe battletoads gives people the feels as well i don't know um but what was it like writing for battletoads such an iconic kind of historical game yeah i mean just kind of getting to join the stable of rare composers was absolutely insane to me um you know uh, Grant Kirkhope, David Wise, Robin Beanland, uh, Graham Norgate—you know, so, so much of the most iconic music uh, written in the entire games industry has come from this studio. So to get to add my name to that list was crazy, uh, frankly, and um, a little bit intimidating. <laughs> I'm completely honest. <laughs> I can imagine, but that was mitigated by the fact that for the first time in nine years, I was hired to work on a project which utilized my chosen instrument. So rather than trying to uh, yes. kind of, uh, fake the fact that I'm not a pianist and, uh, you know, w w probably have a, a childlike grasp of, um, you know, the, the main instrument that I compose with on a daily basis, uh, I got to just pick up a guitar and kind of do what I know how to do. Although, albeit it was in a slightly different way I, I i was never in metal bands kind of growing up or anything but i did i did used to love that kind of music i just i just didn't play it so i had a really good knowledge of the subject matter i used to listen to a lot of thrash i used to listen to a lot of um power metal uh and also just like the 90s stuff you know they i, I think the black nice. album was probably the 
the style guide for you know um how we wanted things to sound and that's a lot easier to achieve with uh, the advances of technology today uh, it didn't it didn't take us a million pounds and uh, however many years to produce the record that uh, <laughs> had that kind of sound to it so uh, that was good it was so much fun uh, and also just like such a juxtaposition to what i was doing at the time with lost words they just acted as the perfect palate cleansers for one another because anytime I, I was getting imagine, a bit yeah. bogged down with writing emotional orchestral music, I got to pick up my Les Paul and start blasting some riffs out. Anytime my ears or the neighbours or my girlfriend needed a break, <laughs> I got to go back and sit at the piano and write something, you know, quite intimate and, you know, emotionally fulfilling. Yeah, and it's nice that you got to palate cleanse, like you say, between Battletoads and Lost Words. And how did you make sure that you didn't get lost too much in one or the other? Oh, I don't know. I had a very uh, interesting system uh, of whichever deadline was closer. That is the project that I would uh, work on at that point in time. So that's that's literally as much fun as I ever put into it, man. Like, where where am I going to get in the most trouble if I don't deliver something this week? Okay, cool. That's what's happening. Uh, And that's, yeah, that's really how you do it. So yeah, my schedule kind of defines um, what I'd be working on at any given time. But then also, you know, when you get into the back end of it, and um, there's a little bit less um, deliverables, so slightly less constant than they are uh, to begin with. Then, it, yeah, I, I would absolutely define it by you know what was I feeling creatively inspired by at that point in time. And nine times out of ten, it would be the opposite to whatever I'd just been doing for the past week. So you just you know kind of mix it up and go with go with the flow. And what would you say was one of the biggest highlights from Battle Tides? Oh, definitely the recordings, man. Getting to go back uh, to. Um, you know, uh, rock studios rather than uh, an orchestral uh, soundstage um, was just so nostalgic for me. When I was in bands, my absolute favourite part of the entire band lifestyle was actually going to the studio and recording these ideas, bringing to life these concepts which you've been banding around in practice for however long and actually uh, realising the vision that you had in your head is just a feeling which I never tired of and never will. So getting to go back and experience that again sort of for the first time in 10 years was just so cool. And um, everyone that I worked with was people that I knew from my prior life, if you will. Um, <laughs> the producer was uh, a producer um, that I you know really looked up to back at the time. You know, he worked with a lot of awesome bands, um, Def Havana, Architects, uh, Unit Six, um, lo- uh, you know, lo- loads of really cool UK bands that I used to look up to a lot. And he, the, the head of the Lala Studios, I was even in a band with very briefly at one point in time. So things really did kind of like come full circle because I remember when I first started composing, I had to sell my uh, my Pride and Joy, which was a, a PRS um, no. custom, uh, yeah, custom no. twenty two. And a uh, Mesa Boogie single rectifier amp head, and that was my that was my dream setup that um, I'd, I'd always wanted ever since I was kind of a teenager, and I you know worked and traded my way up, and I finally got it. But then I I, I sold them to get a secondhand iMac uh, MIDI keyboard and a secondhand copy of Pro Tools LE uh, so that I could write Thomas was alone. Uh, <laughs> oh man! <laughs> but this is the first time that I'd, ha- I'd had a reason to actually go back and buy a new guitar for something. So it was actually quite nice seeing that journey complete itself from having to sell-, sell it to invest in my career to my career getting to a point where I was able to go back and rebuy all of my gear. So 
And did you rebuy oh, everything? I, yeah, did, uh, there's a Tele, there's a Les Paul, um, there's a I've got a Marshall TSL 100 now, um, a load of amp modeling, so a load of Line Six. So like, yeah, I've got my own rock studio again, basically. So. Nice. <laughs> and did you just spend the first hour hugging the guitars and the amp? <laughs> I would have. I can't part with my guitar now. I spent the first hour trying to remind myself how to play it. <laughs> <laughs> As long as you weren't playing Smoke on the Water or Smells Like Teen Spirit, then I'm sure you're all right. <laughs> that's, that's almost as far as I had to go back to re, re-educate myself. It no. regressed. <laughs> no, it's amazing how quickly your muscle memory does come back. I, lit- I literally barely picked up a guitar for many, many, many years. Um, but yeah, just writing with it every day, you quickly get back into the groove. I don't know why more game studios don't employ people to write 90s power metal for them. It's, it's I mean, beyond, me neither. It's, it's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Just constantly. I'll, I'll probably be waiting nine years until it happens again. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, what can you tell us about that you're working on at the moment? <laughs> yeah, this will be very short. Um, yeah, nothing. <laughs> well, I'm working on <laughs> I'm working on project two uh, with Dalala currently, um, who made Battletoads, and it's an incredibly exciting um, IP and the biggest thing which I'm going to have worked on to date. Uh, and awesome. it's very different from Battletoads, but that's all I can say about that currently. Nice. And the final question, um, I don't think I've asked you this before, even though you've been on the podcast a couple of times. Um, if you could go back in time and speak to your past self, what one piece of advice would you give yourself? And don't be anything like the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> Bet on Leicester winning the league in 2000 and uh, whenever it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say uh, don't become complacent with success because it doesn't last if, you, if you're not proactive with trying to, um, trying to push yourself. If you have one hit game, don't assume that that's going to see you through the rest of a career because it doesn't work that way. If you're very lucky, people will, you know, continue to uh, come to you, but more often than not, I, f- I feel like there was probably a point in my career where I thought I would just live off uh, royalties and whatever, whatever projects, uh, you know, came for the rest of my career. But that's a only going to last for so long and B not going to give you the career that you want, you know, the same as, um, the same as with uh, relationships or uh, any other aspect of life, you know, you should you should be proactive in kind of choosing uh, the uh, careers, pathways and people that are the best fit for you personally and what you want. So I think actually going out and, you know, finding the jobs that I want to work on has enabled me to craft the career that I want for myself rather than just working on whatever happens to come into my inbox uh you know that week or something and that's a lesson that i probably didn't learn until i don't know five or six years ago so uh that's what i would say if i could go back to uh 21 year old david nice i love the honesty do you think 21 year old david would listen to you oh definitely not no (laughs) (laughs) absolutely not but you know nothing mentioned nothing gained And uh, I think that's an excellent note to leave it on. Sadly, I have to say goodbye, but I will be inviting you back in the future if you want to join us again. Oh, absolutely, dude. Always a pleasure. 
I've really enjoyed Lost Words Beyond the Page. I'll be checking out Battletoads as soon as possible because I love the soundtrack. And uh, thanks for joining me again, David. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks for having me. everyone this is sam thanks very much for listening to the sound architect podcast today i hope you enjoyed this episode if so there are many ways you can support the show which is incredibly appreciated obviously there's the financial way where you can support us on patreon which is patreon.com forward slash sound design uk however there are many other ways which also help such as liking subscribing reviewing commenting and sharing via whatever channel you listen on Thanks so much for your support already. It really is a work of passion for me, and I'd love to keep sharing the knowledge from all these talented and wonderful people. Thanks again, and catch you on the next episode.